there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Welcome to the Organic Gardener podcast today. I am I'm so excited to introduce my guest, Tara Austin Weaver out of Seattle, Washington, because she has written a book that I know you're going to love called Growing Berries and Fruit Trees in the Pacific Northwest. And even listeners, if you're not in the Pacific Northwest, this book is full of, you know, great tips. And um, I learned so much. She sent me a copy ahead of time, which is just so sweet. And I learned a ton. And I, I know you're, I know in, listeners are interested in fruit trees um, because Russ Medge has been downloaded so many times. And anytime anybody talks about fruit trees uh, or growing trees, um that that's popular and then I am so excited about growing berries because I tasted some fresh blueberries from um somebody who was a guest on my show that lives near me Nola in her yard this summer was like oh my gosh we have got to try this again because our first foray into blueberries was awful and then I don't know there's just so much to learn so welcome to the show Tara Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for everything. And I'm so excited. I love your little book. I think it's going to be the perfect. Well, no, it doesn't come out until after Christmas. Is that right? In January? After Christmas. Yeah, end of January. Okay, so I'm not going to say it's a great Christmas present, but it's a great present for anybody who you know, because it's, it's just, it's the perfect size and it feels good and it and it's great to look at. And it's just one of those books you're going to go back through because it's full of so much information about how to grow um, abundant fruit in your own backyard, whether you have an orchard or just a couple of trees. So, but do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I'd love to. So uh, I'm, I guess I'm sort of a second generation gardener. I grew up with um, my mom had a really, big organic garden. She was in the early days of the organic movement. And um, I actually grew up not really liking to garden. Like I liked playing in the garden um, and running around, but like weeding just seemed like drudgery to me. Um, But I have all of these really sort of very visceral memories of um, just being out in the garden in the sunshine. And my mom would sort of, you know, pop little cherry tomatoes into our mouths when we were kids and just, you know, having those explode in your mouth and, and like fruit that was warm from the tree because you just picked it and in the sunshine. And so I have all of these really positive memories of being in a garden, but not really doing the work. (laughs) So I went away from gardening for a long time. And then I was actually living in San Francisco in my, um, you know, late twenties, early thirties. And, um, I think I started coming back around to the idea of gardening. And I remember one year for my birthday, I decided that I would buy myself window boxes because I wanted to grow herbs. I had gotten really into cooking and, yeah. um, it's, you know, so irritating to have to buy a big bunch of parsley when you need a tiny sprig. And so I thought I would grow all of these herbs and, and, um, and so I did, I, you know, lugged these window boxes home from the hardware store and, and was dangling out of like a third story window with a, with a drill trying to mount them and, and got them all in and filled them with soil and put nestled my tiny little, you know, herbs in there and was so, so pleased. And then within, really like a week or two, I noticed there was, you know, the sage leaves had this kind of white stuff on it. And I, 
I was really concerned and I lived on the foggy side of the city and I thought, oh my God, does it, you know, is it some fungus or blight on my, on my herbs? And, and when I went to investigate, I discovered it was actually pigeon poop because I lived in the city and there were just pigeons oh. everywhere. And I realized that I was never going to be a gardener in the city. <laughs> so it wasn't really until I moved to Seattle about 10 years ago that um, everything kind of fell into place. And Seattle is such a gardening community. Everyone here, it seemed, you know, whether they even just grow really beautiful yards or are actual edible gardeners, um, everyone just, you know, was out in their yards working. And I got, I got bitten by the bug and, you know, quickly used up all of the area at the, the house that I was living. It didn't have much of a yard. And then I got a, a community garden plot eventually and started studying permaculture and, Eventually, my mother moved up to Seattle and bought um, a house on half an acre. So we, for the past nine years, we've been collaborating on a rather large garden that was completely overgrown when we found it. It had been neglected for a decade, covered in blackberries, and there were actually um, nine fruit trees on the property, but we couldn't even see them. They were engulfed in blackberries. So once um, once things started getting cleared out around here, we we realized we had a little bit of an orchard and we've just been adding to it ever since. So I think we actually have about 20 fruit trees now and um, lots of berries, 12 different types of blueberries, um, raspberries, strawberries, um, and also do a lot of annual vegetable gardening as well. And I've recently I've gotten more into flowers. Um, so I'm obsessed with my dahlia patch and um, also interested in, in flowers to, you know, support pollinators. So are you following, sorry, Erin Benzinkian's blog in Florida yes. Flower Farms oh, then? Because I know she's so big into dahlias and I yeah. tried to grow dahlias this summer and I must have buried them too deep because they never sprouted or anything. So Oh no. Um, yep, I'm going to have to try that again next summer. So, uh, well, I can totally understand that. I love flowers and I just enjoyed listening to your whole little story here and you know, been picturing things, especially I've been working on these paintings of Paris, like I was kind of telling you in the pre-chat. And, um, and so the thing in Paris is there's so many window boxes everywhere full of things growing and, um, flower boxes. And, but it is a challenge to be able to grow in the city. That's interesting. I also was reading this very strange children's book about pigeons, um, <laughs> in this crazy, there's like this place in, it's like the craziest thing in Pennsylvania where they have like a live pigeon shoot and this kid in the book doesn't like it, but I can barely read the book. It's really strange. Um, anyway, uh, I think, I think my situation in San Francisco, we, we actually had our neighbor fed the pigeons. So we had a lot of them coming and going. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was uh, particularly unsuited. They, they decided that my window boxes were a great place to nestle down um, so that, that seemed like a non-starter, but, um, but I moved away shortly after that. So it, it all worked out. Now, do you have window boxes where you are in Seattle? No, um, I have with a half an acre, I, I, it's mostly in the ground. I have a few things in pots, but, um, I feel like that keeps me 
more than busy. I guess I do have um, a few window boxes up on the deck just um, to grow some herbs in. That's mostly where I grow my basil because I walk past it multiple times a day and I can keep an eye on whether it needs watering. And I actually am trying um, to grow some citrus here in the Northwest, which we're not entirely suited to, but I have those in pots um, on the deck so I can move them into sheltered areas in the winter. So I have a Meyer lemon and um, I was recently given a, um, a Macrut lime, which is Ooh. sort of a South Asian, South Asian lime that you use in, um, in like Indonesia, um, Thai curries and things like that. You, you use the, um, the, the zest and the leaves. So I'm attempting to do this. These are my California roots, right? I'm attempting to grow citrus, even though it, it's really a little too cold for us to do that easily. But I think people are trying that. My mom grew a Meyer lemon in New York. Wow. And, that's and like she just, it's so funny that you mentioned that because my like, you know, memory post on Facebook uh, this weekend was like that Meyer lemon, like her plate of Meyer lemon. She's like, I grew these. So um, it's amazing what you can indoors, do in indoors winter. in different places. Yeah. It finally died this summer, I think, but it, she had it growing for a few years there. She was going to send Mike and I one to try. So, <laughs> you um, know, I actually have a little section in the book on growing citrus in the Northwest because I know a lot of people are interested and there's a nursery up in, um, in, on Vancouver Island, uh, a little North of Victoria and they do, um, I think they're called, uh, fruit trees and more. Um, they do an amazing job with in-ground citrus and avocados and all sorts of things that shouldn't be growing in their climate. And they have this whole approach, like they grow them up against the walls of the building on the south side. And in the winter, um, they string the old-fashioned Christmas tree lights, like the really big bulbous ones, mm -hmm. um, through the trees. And they cover them in remay. And on the coldest winters, they turn the lights on and just those little, the, the small amount of heat from these older, the non LED lights um, gives enough heat to keep the, um, keep the citrus from freezing. And they say that they have citrus every day of the year. Wow. They, they have some videos actually yeah. on, their, on their website. Um, and it's really worth checking out because it's very inspirational. Excellent. Well, we'll have to check that out. Uh, so do you want to tell us about something that grew well this year? You know, <clears throat> I'm actually coming off not a fantastic garden year because I moved this spring. I wasn't really thinking it through. Um, and I thought, oh, I can move and get the garden in at the same time. And that really didn't happen. Um, so I ended up growing a lot less than I normally do. Like I had one of my raised beds, I just let sort of go, go wild. Um, but because of that, um, you know, and this is always true in any gardening year, like some year, you know, some years, one thing does really well and another year it's another thing. Um, so because I wasn't growing as much, I was able to actually pay more attention to some of my, like my basil crop was amazing this year because I actually had the time to pinch it back exactly when I ought to. And I ended up getting like five crops of basil, um, which I made into pesto and now I have a freezer full of pesto. So, um, that was probably my most successful thing, but there are a couple of things that I just, you know, usually I plant a lot of winter squash 
And I just didn't, I didn't even have the bandwidth for it. Um, but the other thing that has actually been good about having sort of a lighter gardening year this year is that um, I had the time and energy in the fall to really um, kind of put the garden to bed well and do some things um, to focus on soil fertility for next year. So I, um, we have neighbors on both sides who have goats, and I um, asked if I could clean out clean out one of the goat barns and just used all that bedding. So um, all the beds are, you know, covered with all of this great, great material that's going to break down over the winter and just enrich the soil for next spring. And I'm already looking forward to a good season next year. So, you know, that's, that's kind of what I have to tell myself. Like some years you go gangbusters and some years you focus on other things. But I think that's so important. And I think you, um, you know, shared a lot of golden seeds there. Like some years, every year, different things do well. And some years you just don't have the bandwidth for everything. So this year you had a great, um, year of basil and probably learned a lot of things about, you know, growing pest or growing basil for pesto or making pesto or just, um, I don't know, 2018, my, motto for 2018 was um, life happens for you not to you and to just kind of take <laughs> advantage of everything that did work out and did go well and really focusing on like accomplishments instead of what didn't work out so yeah. what about well, and, what are you excited and, to do next year once you've well, moved or sorry I didn't, we can go back I was gonna say is that that's one of those situations that really just um makes me so gratified to have the fruit trees and the berry bushes. And one of the reasons why I really wanted to write this book is because you can have a, an off year and they don't mind. They really, um, you know, perennial gardening is a sort of a growing obsession with me because, you know, I, I, I have a busy life and in the summer I also really like to go hiking and um, I am really, really interested in those things that don't need as much help and tending as, you know, lettuce and, and peas do. So it, you know, those 12 blueberry bushes, they were fine. They had a great crop and they asked nothing of me and the fruit trees, it's the same thing. I mean, we, you know, we do, um, we do winter pruning and then, you know, they're really pretty much on their own and they just give and give and give. I make a joke in the book that, um, Fruit trees, I've decided, are sort of like being an aunt and uncle. Like you kind of have to show up at key points in the year and and uh, put in a little bit of FaceTime. But it's nothing like being a parent and doing the daily raising and tending of children. You really um, get so much um, reward for minimal effort. And um, and berries are are the same. I mean, those raspberry canes, as long as you you prune them back in the winter and clear them out a little bit, they just come up in the spring and give you fruit. And it's really, you know, the, the sort of reward to effort ratio is very satisfying. I agree 1000% with all of that because I'm like you and I feel very similar about wanting to go hiking in the summer, especially I'm, a, you know, a teacher by trade. And so when the summer is the only time I have off to get yeah. out in the woods, oh, sometimes it's tough and like, and then I almost always work full time. So getting to the garden, there'll be like five days a lot of times in the summer, like in the spring or here and there where I won't even see the garden in the daylight. So it wouldn't survive if my husband wasn't out there. So I think that's so true that 
bushes. And I always talk about that. If I was going to start a garden over from scratch, like the first thing I would do is put in raspberries or fruit trees or something. Plus I'm always surprised, like you said, how prolific they are, how much fruit you really get back. Like your ROI is just incredible compared to like, I was talking to somebody about how much time and energy my husband puts into, you know, green beans for the whole year and you know, yeah. growing them and picking yeah. them and then harvesting them and, preparing them is um a lot of effort so i i just think listeners are going to love this i'm very into perennial gardens and herbs and things that come back and and kind of grow more you get more of it seems like so what are you excited to try people i warn people a little bit um in the book that you know you you can get like really big harvests and you almost need to be prepared for them i have some friends who bought a house that had um an old pear tree on it. And the first year they were so overwhelmed in the fall with all this fruit that, you know, fell down and started rotting and attract, you know, attracted all of the yellow jackets. And they ended up like not knowing what to do with it, that they dug a hole and buried all of these pears because they just, you know, they, I mean, they're not particularly, um, food, you know, food oriented people. And they just didn't know what to do with like, you know, a glut of, a glut of tree fruit. So, um, the book actually has 12 recipes that are kind of master recipes that I've developed over the years. So when I say a master recipe, like you can make this jam or that crisp or that cake with almost any fruit. So, you know, put in raspberries at the beginning of the summer and blueberries towards the end of the summer and, you know, pears or apples in the fall. And I really lean on those recipes. They're sort of like my secret weapon um, to to use up all the fruit and also preserve it. Because when you get that much all at once, you can't eat it all. And I definitely I give a lot away to friends and I give some to the food bank. But, you know, we also want to, um, you know, do something with it. So we can enjoy it throughout the winter when there is no fruit or, you know, fruit is very expensive or trucked from, you know, states or countries far away. Um, So that is, you know, I kind of came back to gardening really because I became a food person and a food writer. And um, so I thought that that was a really important balance to, you know, these are all the great ways that you can grow the fruit and here are some good ways to use it up because, um, again, it's not a bad problem to have. A glut should never be a bad problem, but um, it, it is something that can take you by surprise if you're not prepared for it. I, yes, you're so right about a lot of those things. And, and then feeling like I always end up feeling guilty if I... Um, you know, don't take advantage of things or let things go or, you know, and then the next year I'm like, oh, should I plant that or should we do that? Because we didn't use it the year before or we didn't, but we have chickens now. So that kind of helps us a little or that. Um, yeah, we have chickens as well. And it sort us, of, this is the guilt a bit. Yeah. And then Mike, we got enough apples this year that Mike was able to can applesauce, which was really great because he, we buy a lot of applesauce because almost everything he bakes my husband's a big baker and he puts applesauce in almost all of his cookies and his muffins and things just to make them a little softer and just I don't know this is one of his ingredients he likes so and just that homemade applesauce was delicious so oh it's um, so good I I feel like um the other warning is that you just get a little bit spoiled because the quality of the fruit that you grow yourself is just going to be 
so much better than what you get at the store. And even honestly, you know, sometimes what you can get at the farmer's market. I mean, we have great farms around here, but they're still picking things a few days ahead of time just to be able to get it to market. And, you know, going out and picking your own strawberries for breakfast first thing in the morning, it's, you know, it's really hard to beat that. <laughs> it, it It's incredible. Like a strawberry that's been warmed like the sun, like you were talking about, you put one of those in your mouth and you wouldn't even go near those strawberries in the store. There's nothing like fresh grown fruit that's, um, like you said, harvested by the sun or warmed by the sun, ripened by the sun. That's the words I'm looking for. And the other thing that I think that a lot of people don't um, don't realize is that, you know, commercial growers grow certain varieties because they stand up to transport and they're going to look good at, on a supermarket shelf for a couple of days. And there are a lot of really amazing varieties that don't get grown commercially because they just are too fragile. Like we have um, there is my favorite strawberry variety is called Shuksan. And it um, it was developed here in the Northwest, but um, it is not grown commercially because you really need to process them within 24 hours. Like they just don't stand up, um, but they have the most amazing flavor. And there are some um, there are some farms in this area who do grow them and take them to the farmers market. But you know you can't like you don't buy them and think they're going to last for three days. Like you buy them and eat them that day. Um, and it's a flavor that, you know, if you're, if you are just used to buying your fruit at the grocery store, you have never experienced. And I had, um, a, a friend of mine, the book is dedicated to, um, he passed away last year, but he was a big proponent of Shukshan strawberries. And he brought a group of food writers up to the Skagit Valley, North of Seattle, um, to a farm that grew Shukshan at, for, you know, sort of a tasting trip. And one of the food writers put this strawberry in her mouth and she said, if this is a strawberry, what have I been eating all my life? Like it is just apples to oranges with what you can, what you can experience and what you can taste. And it's been interesting for me because as I said, we have 12 different types of blueberries and they all have different flavors. And some of them are really like big and juicy. And some of them are, are smaller. There are actually different types of blueberries. They're high bush and low bush blueberries. And, um, the low bush are sort of more like the wild blueberries that you get out of Maine and they're smaller and a little seedier, but their flavor is amazing. But you don't see those in the supermarket because, you know, people buy by eyesight and they want those big plump juicy berries, which are great. But compared to the flavor of these smaller ones, they're sort of like, you know, they're, they're tasty, but when you compare them side by side, you're like, oh, those big ones are kind of watery and don't have as much flavor. So it's just really interesting. Um, I have a lot of in the book, there are a lot of um, my, you know, my favorite and and other people's favorite um, varieties recommended for. Um, and you have to make sure, of course, that they, they will grow in, in your growing zone. But um, there is a whole world out there to explore that you don't get unless you grow your own. I'm so glad to hear that because you know what? After tasting those blueberries last summer, I was thinking I'm never going to go huckleberry picking again. But then I have this one thing that I can bake. Like I'm not the baker at our house. Like I said, my husband bakes most of the stuff. I think you married very well. How awesome to be married to a baker. Yep. Yeah, it has its pluses and minuses. <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
I make this huckleberry coffee cake and I don't think it's going to taste as good with bigger, plumper berries. And so if I can find a variety of smaller berries, more like a huckleberry size, I think so. I'm going to have to check that out and see if they'll grow over here. Because I know our conditions are a little bit, or well, they're probably quite a bit different than yours. But um, I think, you know, at least we're kind of at least on the northern side of the country. So... Well, those, um, those actually the low bush, um, blueberries, the, the smaller, um, more flavorful ones, those actually are suited to colder climates. Oh, that would make sense because you said they came out of Maine, right? Yeah. Yeah. They grow a lot around, um, the U S Canadian border. Oh, excellent. Well, that's where we are. So, uh, so what are you excited to try next year? Um, well, I feel like I actually, um, again, because I had a, a, you know, slower gardening season this year, I already have kind of a jump on next year. Like I have my fava beans in already. They're already about four inches tall. Um, so what am I, am, I had a really good tomato season about two years ago, um, because I started, growing tomatoes from seed, which I'd never done before. Um, we have pretty good plant sales in the spring here, so you can get a lot of different varieties as seedlings. And, um, but there are, you know, we're not in a great tomato growing region. We don't get really as hot as we should. Um, Washington is divided sort of, you know, west of the mountains and east of the mountains and the east side gets much hotter and is much drier. Um, and then the Western side, you know, we still get a little bit of summer rain and we just don't have the heat units to get really, really sweet tomatoes. Um, so I wanted to explore some different like heirloom Italian varieties and, and, um, there, they have these, um, pleated um they're not like the big knobby ugly heirlooms but they're they're smaller tomatoes but they just are really pleated and odd looking but they have amazing flavor so i started all of the um the tomatoes from seed and i did the same last year but again i was moving and they didn't get tended very well so they ended up kind of um getting leggy in their seedling pots and getting planted out later so i really want to be on my tomato game next year and, you know, once you start get, doing things from seed and have access to all of these different interesting varieties, you just want to try more and more. It's sort of like collecting baseball cards. I think you just want all of them. So I'm interested in in um, doing more of that. And um, I've really also gotten into chicories, which are like radicchio and sort of those bitter lettuces, which I really like because we can grow them through the winter here. Sure. And it's really sure. ex you can. exciting to have something. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, I have some that are actually going on two and three years now, like the same plants. I just cut the seed stock off. Like I actually, um, do it sort of as a cut and come crop. Like I will cut off all the leaves as they're growing in the summer and then it just re-sprouts from the, um, the root stem. So yeah, I have like three-year-old chicories at this point and, um, and I've let some, develop seed stalks and then I let the seeds drop. And so now they're reseeding themselves, um, which, you know, I, as I said, I'm really very attracted by, by uh, perennial gardening because 
I love being in the garden, but um, summer's just, you know, short in the Northwest and there's a lot of other things to do. So I kind of want to, and, you know, I have a very, with half an acre, I have a lot um, to look after. So any kind of shortcuts or um, ways to make things easier on myself, I will take them. And it's also, you know, it's a, sort of more of a permaculture approach if you can kind of have a have a cycle that just um, replenishes itself is fantastic. So, um, yeah, I, I have a bunch of different types of uh, chicories that are going strong. And they're so it's so nice in the winter to go out and see these, you know, beautiful red heads of of um they're not lettuce, but, you know, heads of, of uh, produce. I, I can't call them greens either because they're not green. But um, it's just nice to have, you know, something to make salads with through the winter because that's that's a hard get in this climate. I mean, I know you're even colder than we are, but. I um, am totally craving for like, so my husband built us a mini farm a couple of years ago. And before that, we've always, we've kind of had like limited water and like this year, I don't, for the last two years, I've barely bought any produce from like August till about now. And, and then I finally bought a bag of romaine and what did they do? Tell me, make it, how to oh, throw it away. I was like my first <laughs> bag of produce I bought or any kind of like, you know, since August. And then I had to throw it away anyway. But like, I'm actually still, even though our ground is frozen and there's snow in the garden, picking kale that's just hanging there. Um, but that's the closest thing. And Mike even said to me the other day, he's like, we've got to get you some kind of winter cold bed growing so you can have fresh greens and lettuce because he can just tell I'm kind of like getting antsy <laughs> and it's are only you, November but um are you familiar with Nikki Jabor I am I have the four season harvest book she does um I follow her on Instagram and it's so fascinating to see what she is doing in Nova Scotia I think it is I think so right yeah yeah, she is, you know, she's all of these cold frames and she's, you know, growing salad in the middle of a Canadian winter um, surrounded by snow. So I'm super inspired by by um, what she's doing. And there's also another book um, and I'm blanking on the author, but I think it's called Growing Oriental Vegetables, which sounds like a very dated title, um, but it is uh all about, again, you know, the sort of cold se cold season gardening um, and talking about different varieties that do well in cold climate. I know there are, you know, mustards are hardier than lettuces. And um, I haven't I haven't really, really dived into that because we just grow a lot of kale also. Like my family eats kale like nothing else. Um, went one year, uh, my, so my mother, um, she's kind of pulled back from gardening. She's getting older, but, um, one year she, you know, she would plant things in the spring and then she's gone all summer long. She goes up to, she's a cabin up in Canada where we used to live. And so she goes up there, but she plant, you know, she planted all of this kale. And when she went away, I was just overwhelmed. And I called her up and I said, do you know how many kale plants you planted? And she's like, oh, you know, I think I planted 30 or 40. And I said, no, you planted 110. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> because, yeah, so, but it, it goes through the through the year. And again, it's one of those kind of like lazy gardener tricks. Um, it is. It, you know, it can go even like multiple years. And then we let it go to seed because the birds, you know, the bees love the blooms. 
And then the birds love the seed and then they crack open all the seed pods and I just let them drop to the soil and it just resprouts. So again, I'm, <laughs> I think I'm the lazy gardener. Uh, I'll just call it efficient and effective. And I mean, I don't know. Uh, I think we're just like busy and we have a lot to do. The one thing I want to say is I think I said Nikki's the name. I think that book is written. The four season gardener is Elliot Coleman. And then she wrote the year round vegetable gardener. Yeah, she just I came out with a new book in 2018. So I've been trying to get her to come on the show. I have to email her again, maybe this winter. Cause she, she maybe have some time. Um, I think you're right, but yeah, it's super, super inspiring. And Elliot Coleman, I mean, he's in Maine. Yeah. So I, and yeah, he's, we'll he's get there for sure. For years. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But yeah, I, I have a greenhouse and it doesn't get a whole lot of use. I, we, um, like we start seeds indoors and then we move them out to the greenhouse for a while. So it gets, you know, about a month and a half of use, but I would actually um, like to be growing some things in there in the winter in ground, but the area that it's on is just a mess of um, like bindweed and uh, quack grass. So I need to really, really, really clear out the soil there um, and get all the roots out. And it's on my like longer to-do list, but hasn't hasn't been quite a priority yet. But I'm I'm very um, interested in what people do to get them what gardeners do to get themselves through the winter. Yeah, because it's getting I think it's getting harder and harder because the food in the stores just seems to taste less and less like food, <laughs> like you were saying about the strawberries earlier. So, um, but we're also learning a ton, and and like you said, you are too. So, what we what my husband does is he plastics in our porch and heats it out of our kitchen, like opens the kitchen window oh. and door. So that's yeah. definitely not something we can do until closer to spring. So, mm -hmm. but we'll figure it out one of these days. I know. So, how about something that didn't work so well the way you thought it maybe was going to come out? Um. I have actually been struggling a little bit with peas, which sounds very silly, but um, I'm not entirely sure. I've just been having really low germination rates, and I think it may be um, – I net my peas after I plant them because we have a lot of bird life in the garden, which you know I generally like, but not when they eat the things that I've just planted. Um, but So I don't know if it's, if it's birds or slugs or – something like that. But I'm actually starting to, um, not start my seeds in the green, start my piece in the greenhouse because, um, yeah, when I plant them in the ground, they're just not doing well. And then I have, um, my first experience with uh, destructive wildlife, I guess I would say I've, I've had, um, some tunneling in the garden for the past couple of years which I think is moles. And I haven't been too fussed about it. Like they, you know, they throw up those dirt mounds, but I don't have a super tidy garden or an immaculate lawn. So most of the time it's been fine, but I think something else is now using the mole tunnels because last year my tulips were just all cut down in the prime of life. And when I went to, um, to investigate, I would, you know, sort of t gently tug at the stem and it would either come out super easily having been sheared off or the entire bulb would come out and I would see that something has eaten the center of the bulb out. 
And I, that's not, I don't think moles do that. They, they mostly are after earthworms and grubs, I think. So I think maybe voles are using the mole tunnels, but I've tried a bunch of, you know, sort of, um, healthy, healthy things. You know, one garden expert said, you know, make a, a strong slurry of mint and pour it down their holes. And that didn't work at all. And, um, so that's, something I get to investigate this winter and see what kind of approach I can feel comfortable with trying to get rid of my uninvited guests because, um, and I'm also, I planted a a few tulips this year, but I planted them actually in um, plastic pots and just sunk the pots down because I hope they won't eat through the pots. Um, But I was really worried for all the dahlia tubers because I don't know if whatever is is, uh, eating the tulips would also think the dahlias are tasty. So it's a little little heartbreaking. Um, But yeah, I don't don't know really what to do about that. We have voles too. But Mike, they weren't as bad this summer as they were the summer before. And... Um, but yeah, that is definitely something if I find anything or if you find anything, let's kind of stay in touch because that is definitely something my listeners and everybody struggles with are those, um, critters that can get in under the fence or like, cause we have like, you know, a big giant six foot deer fence, but yeah. one year we had really bad squirrels climbing over the fence. And then we also had lots of voles and I just, yeah, figuring out what the solution to that is. We have a ton of squirrels, but they haven't actually bothered anything. Um, so that has been nice. I mean, they, you know, I live in the Northwest, so they're kind of big evergreen trees all around and they just scurry everywhere. We did try to put out birdseed one, one year. And, um, and even though it was like one of those squirrel safe feeders, that was a real non-starter because <laughs> they just stood underneath it and, and gathered up all the seed that dropped. But, um, yeah, this is my first real... And it was actually super demoralizing. And I think that also, you know, I, I, as I said, I moved this spring, but another reason why I didn't plant a lot is because everywhere I went to, you know, dig with a trowel, I was hitting air pockets everywhere because of their tunneling. And, you know, so then you're like, Oh God, whatever I plant here, is it even going to survive? And then that's just super discouraging. We, our problem was the year before Mike planted me broccoli. Like I was like, we need more broccoli. We need more broccoli. Broccoli is like one of my favorite things. And the squirrels, what they did was they pooped on top of the broccoli heads. And what Mike thinks they did, we finally figured out they would take like one bite and then go to the next head one bite. And then Mike thinks what they were doing was like marking their territory. Uh, I don't know. And then he didn't plant as much broccoli this year, but also the squirrels didn't get into it at all. So I don't know. Somebody did mention to me that maybe cause it was a really dry summer, um, that they were just like standing on the broccoli early in the morning and licking the dew off of it. Oh, interesting. That they were thirsty. Could have been. I don't know. So It sounds like you have very resourceful squirrels. I think mine are a bit dumb. Oh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> they uh, they certainly, we have a few there everywhere. They definitely get into the sunflower seeds, too. And they like, uh, who at the deer get into our sunflower seeds a lot, too. They kind of like shake it, you know, they'll like knock it. And like oh, you were saying, to get into yeah, yeah. Uh, and then go pick them up on the ground. Uh 
What was the other thing? Mike was saying he thinks last he thinks they didn't eat our apples this year, which that that year that they got them, they really got into apples too because he was wondering if maybe like they fermented and they got really drunk and they didn't want the apples this year because they had like, hangovers or something weird. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, having a party in your yard there. <laughs> interesting observation that he made there. So uh so this is the part of the show where we call getting to the root of things which is kind of like a lightning round and um like do you have a least favorite activity something you gotta kind of force yourself to get out in the garden and do is there something you don't really like to do i have bindweed blackberries and horsetail so those like that kind of weeding is just misery so then on the flip side what's your favorite activity to do in the garden you know, this is going to sound funny, but um, my favorite activity is sitting and just enjoying it, which is something I've actually had to learn because particularly as the first, um, God, the first seven years of, of running this garden, I, I wasn't living here all the time. Um, as I said, it's my, it's my mother's yard. And um, so I was coming here to like work in the garden and then I would leave and go home. And a friend of mine finally pointed it out. He's like, you have the worst situation because the best thing about gardening is after you've done all the work is kicking back, having a nice beverage and just enjoying it. And he's like, as soon as you're done with the work, you leave. So I have actually trained myself <laughs> to at the end of a garden session to sit down and just enjoy it a bit because I think, you know, it's very natural for us gardeners to see everything that needs to be done or the thing that isn't going well. Um, I know, you know, I, I spent years uh, writing about farmers and I would go out to their farms and interview them and you'd show up at this small organic farm and it's just, these places are beautiful. And I, you know, I'd be very, you know, complimentary and, and just, you know, be talking about how gorgeous it was. And the farmers just look around and go, huh, I just see all the, you know, all the things that need to be done. And um, so I have, you know, kind of trained myself to sit down and enjoy it because, you know, life moves fast and it's easy to get wrapped up in, you know, all the work that that has to be done or or thank goodness that's over and just move on to the next thing. But, um, you know, garden like the we're we're out there because we love it and we love what we're creating. And, um, you know, to take to 10 or 15 minutes at the end of a, a long weeding session to just um, to sit there and, you know, watch all the birds and the bees and, and everything that's growing is um, is sort of a practice I've 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 trained myself to and I really enjoy it. Well, I'm kind of known for sitting in my garden for sure and enjoying it. But you are actually not the first person that said that on the show because it is a lot of work and it is important to um, enjoy it. So I'm glad you've trained yourself to do that. Well, and I, I also one of the things that um, is really part of my enjoyment of the garden is also bringing other people in and particularly kids. So um, one of the reasons why why uh, we we decided to go in on this large garden is because um, my brother also lives here in Seattle. And at the time he had three small kids and you know my mom raised my brother and myself in a big garden and I, she wanted to give that to her grandkids as well. And um, so the kids have you know also grown up here and, and um, spent a lot of time um, and now you know they're getting into their teen years and aren't particularly as interested as they might have been 
when they were younger. Um, but I have a lot of friends with kids and I, you know, I plant certain things in the garden. Um, I have a whole border of Alpine strawberries, which I really recommend to people who have small children because they fruit all summer long and there's, they taste almost like, almost like fake strawberry flavor, like strawberry bubble yum. Um, it's such like a, a, a shock of strawberry flavor and, they are great for tiny little kid hands, and I, I plant them as a border also because it's um, helpful because the kids go up to the border and then they go no further. They don't start tromping around in the in the flower beds. Um, but I really, um, you know, not everyone has access to nature in their lives on a regular basis. Um, so one of my favorite times is when um, I have towards the end of the summer. I usually have a big open house. Um, on Labor Day weekend and just, you know, people come and go all day long and to see a bunch of kids running around um, in the orchard or, you know, picking whatever they can find is very rewarding to me. I, I sort of feel like that educational component is important. Yeah. Um, and I like sharing it. Aww. I have, that's like, well, as I was telling you, I'm an elementary educator. So, um, yeah, getting I, kids I, out I, in the garden well. is just so important. And so many of my guests have said that even though they were so completely not interested in the garden whatsoever when they were teenagers, it was that love of gardening that their, you know, parent or grandparent shared with them that passion when they were younger and even, you know, that they eventually came back and became gardeners and you know, now as adults are so, you know, so it's important, like, even if your kids are kind of resisting and teenagers are being their typical, I don't want to have anything to do with that. You know, the more that you just, you know, enjoy it and show them how much you enjoy it, the more likely they are going to do it when they get older and get their own land. So I sometimes think that gardening is a seed that has just a very, very long hibernation period. <laughs> wow, that could be a tweetable. <laughs> So if it gets planted in you as a child, um, it, it usually sprouts up at some point. For sure. Oh, I love that. How about what's the best gardening advice you've ever received? You know what? Oh, the best gardening advice is the gardening advice I don't take. Um, this actually comes from a garden blog I was reading I may get the name wrong, but I think it was Indie Gardener. She's a Midwest gardener, and she had um, a section on her golden rules for being a happy gardener. And I was reading through one, and I was through them, and I was like going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I got to the one that said, have a right size garden. And um, my garden is too big for one person, so I think that I would be possibly a lot happier as a garden if gardener if it were a bit smaller and I wasn't running around quite as crazy as I do all summer long so one of my goals for this year is to um work on some irrigation systems which I don't have um I'm the irrigation system and I think that you know having a little bit of that infrastructure in place and taking taking away some of um you know, just the stuff that I don't, I mean, I don't need, like, I actually, uh, like I generally water by watering can because I sort of like to see how much is going in each place. And that's just super inefficient. Um, but the other thing is that we, uh, we water the entire garden on uh, rainwater catchment system right. that we put in. 
So, um, so I have to figure out exactly how an irrigation system works with a, a, one of those big holding tanks because our water pressure fluctuates through the season. So that's just a little an engineering problem I'm going to either have to figure out how to solve myself or find someone to hire someone to solve it for me. Um, so that's what's kind of kept me from taking that step. But I think that 2019 is going to be the year of the irrigation system, and I'm really looking forward to it. Well, that's perfect because um, that, you know, irrigation has come a long way and automatic drip systems are getting easier. And so many people talk about that on my show as like either the biggest thing that they did do or the thing that they want to work on. I know Mike's working on it. And actually, he dug out like in G. Martin Fortier's book, The Market Gardener. Um, one of the things that he's wanted to do ever since I brought that book home was build like a holding pond thing that he um, has oh, like, designs for in there. And so we're kind of in a very, because water's always been a situation for us. And like, I was kind of like thinking inside when you're talking about hand watering your plants, you know, I used to always say the one thing about not having water is we didn't have a lot of weeds because when you don't have water and you're hand watering <laughs> like you are, those that water is going to the roots of whatever it is you're growing. And so now that we do have a giant well and Mike puts on that sprinkler thing and it waters the whole little mini farm down there. It's like, um, then he's got so many more weeds that he never used to have. So that's interesting. I, I've never thought of the benefit of that, that, that sort oh, of casts yeah. it in a more positive light. <laughs> it will for you. Well, like our first six years we lived here, we didn't have running water at all or water on the property. And then we dug a wow. shallow well and that was like enough to do the house, but not really the lawn or the gardens. And then finally we took the plunge and built a well that's 560 feet deep that I think I'll be paying for for the rest of my life um but you know it we've got the orchard now we've got um like 14 fruit trees I think and then he's got his little mini farm and our regular garden beds and so um and still like we're you know it seemed like the first summer one well was it was just like every other week one well was running dry we like we were just constantly running out of water but I think we've fixed a lot of those challenges so water is definitely you know essential and then look at the poor people in california like i've just been thinking about them so much and like my prayers go out to them with the fires this summer and what's going on i just can't even imagine and i get really frustrated when i hear people like bill maher talk about oh there's nothing we can do or like i've seen like so many people this summer like here in montana our smoke was nothing compared i know to what people in california were going through but so many people are just like shredging their shoulders like oh, well, there's nothing we can do about it, you know, and I just, I don't believe that. I believe, like, if we take care of our water, if we follow these growing practices, these permaculture techniques, if we, in you know, care for our planet a little better, we don't have to have these atrocious fires going through that we're having. But I, I think I really push back against that idea that there's nothing that we can do about it because um, we have to. I mean, that <laughs> it's not optional at this point. Um, and... I, you know, it's interesting because honestly, I mean, one of the reasons why I grow so much food is because I do want to have a very small, um, environmental footprint. And I, uh, you mentioned that you were a teacher. I, I was as well. And I also taught environmental ed for years. Um, and it's, you know, we all have to make some pretty, 
uh, take inventories of our own lives and see where we can make an impact and also raise our voices because, you know, as much as, um, as everyone can do something, um, we also need to have the public pressure on government and industry to make some of the larger changes. But, you know, if, if we're going to get through it, this uh, with our population on this planet, it's going to take all of us. So, um, I kind of just want to go pshaw when anyone says there's nothing we can do because there's nothing that we've chosen to do, but that that's going to need to change. Very well said. And I'm really digging this new group called the Sunrise Movement. That's like these kids that are trying to like get this new green deal through and are just like, you know, they're like, they're not taking no and they're not taking more trying. They're like, we want it. It's our future. And I just really support them. So that that is fantastic. Have um, you heard about them? They've been like holding sit-ins since like election day in different offices and working and being like, we want you to pledge and say that you're going to, you know, they want a new Green Deal committee made and like action taken now. They don't want to wait another day. Well, and I think that in some ways, um, the young people are a bit more clear-eyed about this and, um, you know, we have basically um, been going through a huge period of inaction, right? It's like, I don't know if it's the frog in the pot where the, you know, the heat changes, rises slowly. So you don't, don't jump out, but it, it's, it's very clear. And particularly if you live in the West and you've been dealing with these, these wildfires, it's, um, you know, you know, like we are living through climate change right now. And um, it's, you know, the oil industry has wanted to tell us that it's not a big deal, but you know, we're not, we're not that, we're not that blind. Um, so I think that, you know, politicians don't want to bring up the issue because politicians only win when they have solutions and these, this is not going to be an easy solution, but you know what, like we don't really have an option not to. Well, that's what I think, but no, seriously, I meet people constantly, like, in my daily life that are still arguing with me. Like, there are, there's no, they're just like, oh, well, there's nothing we can do. There's always been forest fires. There's always going to be forest fires, and I don't know, like... It's just, uh, it surprises me. So that's what I love about my podcast because my listeners are people just like you and think like you do and think like I do. And I'm, and I'm hoping, like I said, these new sunrise movement, um, is gonna hopefully have some success here. So, you know what, um, what another, um, organization that your listeners might want to look into is, um, climate, uh, citizens, climate, uh, lobby which is very grassroots. I mean, there's a chapter in, you know, in my part of Seattle, but um, it's all over and it's really um, getting, you know, sort of working with that public opinion piece. So um, it's, yeah, Citizens Climate Lobby and um, it's a great organization. Hmm. I'll have to look into them. I haven't heard about them. I had mentioned this group called 350.org and somebody told me about another group but I don't think that was it. They, I thought they were like citizens climate. Oh gosh, it sounds so close to that. Let me see if I can find it really quick. But 350.org is, is wonderful as well. They've been doing work for a long time. Yeah. I love 350.org. I would love to work for them. 
Uh, but they're a tough nut to crack, I think. Or I haven't had much luck with them. Uh, anyway, but, um, so how about a favorite tool? Like if you had to move and could only take one tool with you, what could you not live without? The hori hori. Oh, nice. Uh, it's funny when I started studying permaculture, I would see all these new permaculturalists with their like new hori hori at their waist. And I thought, God, I just, I don't think I need one of those. I have a lot of trowels, you know, I like, I, I don't need that. It's just another thing. And then, um, I ended up, I think I maybe was given one and it is really that and a pair of good clippers and a shovel. I think those would be my like three, (laughs) three things I would take to the desert island. (laughs) How about a wheelbarrow? You know, yes. I mean, I think a wheelbarrow is essential, but, um, but I don't use it all that often. Okay, good to know. I'm going to go with you there for sure with the clippers. My mom got us a pair of pruning clippers for Christmas last year that were made by Cutco. And Mm. I just, they are like slicing butter. I mean, it's just like, I had no idea there could be such a difference in clippers. So I love those. And um, I originally thought a shovel and then I changed my answer to the wheelbarrow. So that's why I was curious. And I know I want to get one of those hoary, hoary knives for Mike. Or I also talked to this woman from Seattle who invented this thing called the dig it. And I want to get, she has a tool there, but they also make a hoary, hoary, I think. And uh, they have one other, she makes like three tools and that's it. But they're really cool um so well interesting sorry you know what i also discovered um is that you can have your clippers sharpened which was a real game changer for me um and the the place where i get my take my knives to be sharpened they also do gardening clippers and he says like they have to be the sort of higher end quality clippers the the cheaper ones he said they don't they're not sharpenable but um, I use the red-handled, I think they're the Fedco, Feldco yeah, uh-huh. um, clippers. But every spring now, I get our clippers sharpened. And it is such a pleasure to do that. Um, yeah, I didn't realize that all of, all of our clippers were, were semi-dull. That would make a big difference. And it's nice to know that there's like a professional person that could do that for you. So Yeah, I have a friend who actually takes hers apart each year and like oils and sharpens them herself. But... Um, that is not yet in my skill set. Me neither. My husband goes out to sharpen the chainsaw all the time. And I always look at him like, wow, how do you do that? Hey, Progressive Radio Network listeners. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to hear the full interview and the rest of um, the getting to the root of things, just go to the Organic Gardener podcast dot com and click on the podcast tab and you can listen to the full show. You can see all the show notes. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for listening and remember to grow local.